This episode is brought to you by Case Filters. Look, I travel the world with my camera and I can use any photography filter I like, and I've tried them all. In recent years, however, I've landed on Case Filters. That's Case with a K, K-A-S-E. Case Filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems, filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get a 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code Burnaby10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and coupon code Burnaby10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case Filters, capture with confidence. Hi, I'm Rich Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring people around the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. But in this episode, well, this episode, I'm solo once again, and you'll never guess where I am. The end of the world. I'm in Ushuaia, Argentina, on the Tierra del Fuego archipelago. It's the southernmost city in the world, and its nickname just happens to be the end of the world, or Fin del Mundo, at the southern tip of South America. It's a beautiful city. Andes Mountain Range is to my north, the Beagle Channel to my south. There's great hiking, glacier trekking, kayaking, fishing, all accessible to visitors who come here. But what it's best known for, and the reason most people travel here, fairly or unfairly, is because it's the embarkation point or the jumping off point for most expeditions to Antarctica. And that just happens to be the reason why I'm here. And as was the case in episode 15, talking about my preparations for Kenya and the Masai Mara, I'm going to talk a little about my preparations for a 23-day expedition to the Falkland Islands, South George Island, and the Antarctic Peninsula. Truly an epic expedition that requires tons of planning and preparation. I'm going with Mute Workshops on this trip, the MV Ushuaia, the ship is appropriately named, and I'm one of the photography instructors on this trip. It will be my sixth Antarctica expedition overall. That's three as an instructor with National Geographic Lindblad, one with Poseidon, and one with Mute Workshops back in 2019. Now, if this episode sounds a little different than some of the others, as far as the quality or fidelity, it's because I'm recording from the end of the world, obviously, on a Zoom 8.6 recorder and a Shure SM58 mic, not my usual studio setup. It's an experiment of sorts, so I'd like to do more episodes and more recording out on location in exotic places, so hopefully this works out. If you're going to Antarctica, you're most likely joining a ship-based expedition. You sleep on the ship, you eat on the ship, and then you make shore excursions on outboard-powered zodiac rafts. From South America, whether it's Ushuaia here in Argentina or Punta Arenas in Chile, you'll have to cross the infamous Drake Passage by sea, unless you fly across and meet your boat on the other side. There are no commercial flights to Antarctica, only charter flights. Almost all to King George Island from Punta Arenas, Chile. At least those are the only ones that I'm aware of. But making those flights is expensive, 
There are challenges the weather conditions create, meaning delays that can last days. And I consider selling the Drake as the initiation fee, or better yet, hazing ritual for the privilege of experiencing the amazing otherworldly white continent. The Drake Passage takes two days on average to cross, and it's one of the most treacherous stretches of open water on the planet. I've experienced 40-foot swells on the Drake. That's what veterans humorously refer to as a Drake shake. But I've also experienced crossings where the water was smooth as glass, or what they call the Drake Lake. So why would anybody want to visit Antarctica to begin with? As I said, I've been five times. This will be my sixth. And with most known locations you visit, it's only human nature to idealize the place in your mind for the days, weeks, months, even years leading up to departure, making the actual experience, once it happens, a slight letdown, since there's no possible way any place could live up to the unrealistic expectations you've created. Not so with Antarctica. And this is my take, and I've experienced and traveled to more than 60 countries, and the experience of almost everyone else I've talked to, but no amount of mental preparation can prepare you for Antarctica. In episode 16, I spoke with Sebastian Modak, editor-at-large at Lonely Planet, about Antarctica and a recent article he had written and published in Lonely Planet titled, This is Your Brain on Antarctica. Google it if you'd like to take a read. He describes how the experience moved him, the feeling of awe he experienced, the inability of his brain to process all of it, quite literally. Antarctica exceeds your expectations in almost every way. But for me, it was the scale, the scale of the place, more than anything else. The landscapes are bigger, grander, more overwhelming than I ever expected. The mountains, the glaciers, the icebergs, icebergs, some of them as big as office buildings you'd find in midtown Manhattan. Then there's wildlife, penguins, a variety of birds, seals, whales. And the continent is absolutely pristine. You look out at what seems like endless mountains, and you wonder if they'd even been traversed by any human footprints. Okay, let's then move on to the gear that I'll be bringing. Like Kenya, I'm bringing two camera bodies, both Canon R5s. They're mirrorless. Now, if you're unsure about why I'm bringing two camera bodies, I suggest listening to episode 15, the Kenya episode, where I talk about this in more detail. But basically, if one of your camera fails, you're not going to be buying another camera in Antarctica. Bring a backup, which is something I always do on every trip. Think of it as two cameras is like having one, and one camera is like having none. Be prepared. And the lens I'll probably be using 85 to 90% of the time is the Canon 100 to 500 for both wildlife and landscapes. Great range, super sharp, it's light and hand-holdable. Everything you will be doing will be handheld, so lightweight lens is essential. I'll add a 24 to 105 and a 15 to 35 millimeter for wider landscapes or environmental portraits of wildlife. But most of the time, I'll have the 100 to 500 mounted on one body and the 24 to 105 on the other, with the 15 to 35 in a jacket pocket. And that pretty much covers everything. 
a good camera strap is important since you're going to be walking around the deck of the ship when it's heaving and twisting under your feet. Protect your camera, protect your lens from being dropped by using a strap, please. I use a black rapid sports sling with a QD connector. Really right stuff in Kirk and others who make camera and lens plates and L brackets have the QD socket incorporated into the design. So on the strap or shoulder sling, you have a QD snap. It's the same connection system that the military uses on their rifles and their rifle slings. It's simple and I love simple. I'm bringing a small camera bag on this trip, a think tank glass limo, which comfortably holds everything I just described. It's important to bring the ring cover that comes with it, or maybe even consider a dry bag. The Zodiac transfers to shore and back can be windy and wavy, and one of these waves could possibly soak you in your gear, so protect both. The only filter I might possibly need is a polarizing filter, a case polarizing filter, of course. I wouldn't bother with a tripod. There's really no need for one that I can think of, so don't bother bringing it. So let's talk about footwear, okay? Footwear should be one of the most important considerations you make on a trip to Antarctica, I think. I bring three pairs of shoes or boots. One is a casual shoe for wearing in the ship's cabin, the dining area, the lounge, etc. And I also wear those same pair of shoes while traveling and during my flights. They're comfortable, easy to slip on and off, just comfortable. Then I have something a little more robust, a light hiking shoe for walking on the ship's deck when it's probably quite cold and windy, maybe wet and rainy, maybe even some snow. Still comfortable, but something a little warmer and more protection from the elements and weather than your casual indoor shoes. The ship will probably offer you boots for shore excursions, and they are probably okay. Probably. On the other hand, they might be thin rubber boots with no insulation. They might be poor condition, or they might leak. They may not have your correct size, and you'll have to settle for boots that are too big or too small. To play it safe, I bring my own. I like the Arctic Sport Muck Boots. They're made with neoprene and molded rubber. High cut, almost up to my knee. Insulated, look to get a larger size than normal so you can wear some thick socks with those. Keep your feet warm. Just trust me on this one. I've owned mine for years and they're nearly indestructible. And I've worn them on cold weather trips all over the world. That's why they're packed and I have them with me here in Ushuaia. Again, that's the Arctic Sport Muck Boots, M-U-C-K Muck Boots. Now on to gloves. Usually the most asked question I get before doing a trip like this. Gloves have always been a difficult choice for me because while I want to keep my hands as warm as possible, I also need the dexterity to operate my camera. So there's always been this balance. If the gloves can keep my hands warm, but I can't operate my camera properly, what's the point of me being here? There really isn't that good solution or a perfect solution, I should say. But this, what I'm about to describe, is the best solution that I have found so far. Okay, Valorette Markov Pro Fingerless Gloves. They do have fingertips, but they fold back out of the way when you want to use your camera. 
And there are little magnets built into them so that when you fold the fingertips back, the magnets connect and they click and they stay out of the way. The gloves also have a, a thin, sticky rubber surface built into them, which gives you a good grip on your camera. And they also have a small, like a zippered pocket for keeping an extra SD card, for example, or maybe one of those small chemical hand warmers for just added comfort. And underneath the gloves, I wear a thin glove liner with touch green fingertips. This adds to the warming quality of the whole glove system and keeps my fingertips warmer when I'm operating the camera. It's not perfect by any means, but it works very well for me. Just make sure that the thin glove liners that you buy have the touchscreen fingertips, or they're called e-fingertips sometimes, or something like that. I need to use the LCD screen on the back of the camera for settings, for moving the focus point, and other things. So you want to be sure that you have those e-fingertips. And you may want to use your phone, too, for some videos or some snapshots. The system works really well for me, and I highly recommend it for any cold weather shooting. Again, the name of the gloves are Valorette. That's V-A-L-L-E-R-E-T. It looks like it's a French word and should be pronounced as Valeray, but they're actually Scandinavian, and it's pronounced Valorette. They've also marketed them as photography gloves, so there you have it. I wear a water-resistant snow pants. If it's extremely cold, I'll wear a thin layer of fleece underneath them. And the weather in Antarctica, believe it or not, can be quite changeable. And that means you have to think layers. I've been in Antarctica in January where it's been sunny and I was wearing a t-shirt out on the deck of the ship. And then the following day it was 20 degrees colder, 30 mile an hour winds and, and blowing snow. So as you can see, it's changeable for sure. The forecast from, from my trip coming up, the Falkland Islands right now looks like temperatures in the 40s Fahrenheit and rain, that's single digits Celsius. South Georgia looks like low teens, that's well below zero Celsius, and snow. The Antarctic Peninsula will be at least that cold, unless something changes drastically over the next few days. October is a bit early in the season, so it will be colder than normal, more snow, and a lot more ice. And by the way, Antarctica is technically a desert, the largest desert in the world, in fact. But the peninsula is wetter than the continent's interior, so you'll get more precipitation. I brought a waterproof shell, like a light synthetic parka, and then a heavy 100-filled down expedition parka, and a variety of wool and fleece layering underneath that. So that's really about it. The conditions will determine you know, what I wear and when I wear it. And I just believe that being flexible and having options is the best way to approach what kind of clothes you're wearing and jacket you're wearing. You should also have a good knit or wool cap for your head. I recommend bringing two just in case the, the wind blows one of them off. Remember, most of your body heat loss occurs through the top of your head. And that's a fact. So a good hat is important. The last question I often get has to do with seasickness. That can be a problem on the Drake Passage especially. But once you reach Antarctica waters, it's much calmer and the boat is stabilized. So you can relax about that. It's not going to be rusty 24-7 for the whole expedition. Just 
the open water passages like the Drake or maybe the, the distance from the Falklands to South Georgia or South Georgia to the peninsula. I brought along lots of Meclizine. It's a medication you can buy over the counter. And in the past, it's worked for me. You can have your doctor prescribe the patch. In the past, that has not worked for me, but others swear by it. I mean, who knows? I've had days on rough seas where I wasn't bothered a bit. I've had other days on much calmer water when I felt awful. So just be prepared for either. Then, I guess the last decision you might have to make on one of these trips is whether to do the polar plunge. The polar plunge is when you you jump into ice-cold Antarctic water for really no other reason than to say that you did it. I have one really good story from Antarctica. I've done both the Arctic and the Antarctic plunge, just again, just to say you did it. The one from Antarctica is especially notable because it was both one of the most epic Antarctica plunges and one of the most embarrassing Antarctic plunges, polar plunges. So at the very back of the ship, people were volunteering to do the plunge and they would, there's maybe a two foot drop off and you would just jump in feet first from two feet and you get into the water and you're immediately cold and you immediately come out and put a towel on and you're done. You've done it. So I was watching people do this and I decided, okay, I'm going to do something a little different. I decided I was going to dive in from about 10 feet up just to do something different. It looked kind of lame what everybody else is doing. So I got my shorts on and I get on a deck that's about 10 feet up above the water. And now everybody's kind of uh, cheering me on and they're watching. I've got a crowd of maybe 20 or 30 people. And I dive in. And when you hit the water, it's it's shock. You lose your breath for just a, a moment. Your, your body's in shock. And as I'm coming up to the surface again, I realize that um, in addition to the shock of the cold water, there was a shock of that realization that I was no longer connected to my shorts any longer. That during, during the dive, I had lost them. They came off. So I came to the surface and I'm in panic and I'm freezing and I just want to get out of the water. But now there's probably 30 or 40 people at the back of the ship watching. And I'm yelling to one of the crew people who were supervising. I, I said, I've lost my shorts. I don't have my shorts. And now people are laughing. And now even more of the folks on the ship are coming toward the back to watch. So I swim to the edge to where the little ladder is, and one of the, the crewmates comes running toward me with a towel to cover me up. And just as he gets to the edge, he slips and falls into the water. And I'm halfway up the ladder, and there I am in all my glory. Got a huge round of applause. I shyly went back down into the water and waited for another towel. So don't do what I did. Take the easy way. Jump in feet first from two or three feet. Don't try to be a hero. And your polar plunge will go much better than mine. That's about it. (laughs) If you're planning an expedition to Antarctica, I hope this helps. Or at least part of it. If you're planning some extreme cold weather photography trip, maybe there's some actionable takeaways you'll find useful or valuable. 
And with that, I'm signing off from the end of the world. And if you've listened this far into the episode, I'd love to hear your feedback or comments. You can do so by tweeting me at Burnaby Photo. And if you enjoyed the show, or any show for that matter, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating on Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and what you would like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's to truth, adventure, and passion. Bon voyage. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.